everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelins and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We have with us a friend of the program since day one in David Zakoden. David has always agreed to do this year-end segment with me. I believe this is the fourth or fifth year we've done this year-end segment together. It almost didn't happen because of this crazy year with the pandemic. We didn't know how much tennis would be played. But thankfully, at the end of the year, we did get in quite a bit. So with that, please welcome back to the pod, David Zakoden. David, thanks again for doing this. Absolutely. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to be on. And I'm, I'm glad, as you said, that we're building this you know, tradition of having these year-end segments. Uh, again, had zero confidence that we were going to do this at the start of the year, but plenty to discuss and uh, very excited to get into it with you because I, uh, I know these segments always lead to some very, very spirited discussions, and I think the, the listeners will definitely enjoy it. It is always one of my favorite segments to do at the end of the year. Uh, and I remember um, talking to you in March when the whole world stopped. I'm like, uh, not sure what kind of content we may have for this year-end segment, but again, thankfully, um, we do have quite a bit that we can go through. And how this is going to work is uh, we're going to kind of go through it chronologically for the listeners. Um, we're not going to hit on everything, obviously. But um, just so we have some order to, to this segment, we will kind of go chronologically and, and hit on the points we choose to discuss. If it does get a little bit disjointed, hey, it's 2020. Everything's disjointed. So uh, for the listeners, please forgive us if we go off track a little bit. But um, we're going to try to stay on course as is. So with that, um, let's get started. And, and we'll start with the first slam of the year in, in Australia. And God, I mean, before first ball was even hit, we, we had the fires going on. During the tournament, we had the shocking passing of Kobe, his daughter, and those other individuals. Um, again, that was during when the tournament was going on. If that was any indication of, uh, of what this year was going to look like, it, it did not start off on a, on a good note at all. Um, Tennis-wise, we again had Dominic Team um, really digging deep, making a great, great run, getting to his third slam final. Couldn't quite get over the hump, falling to Novak um, in this tournament. Eventually, there was some good stuff with Dominic Team at the end of the year. Um, but I guess we'll start there with, with Australia, and, and maybe you can speak a little bit about Dominic Team again getting to his third slam final. Yeah, uh, Australia was, was one of those tournaments, like you mentioned, with the bushfires before the beginning of it. I saw people were talking about it on Twitter, and I, my reaction was, is, is, is a natural sort of occurrence really going to postpone the Australian Open potentially? And obviously little did I know that there was many more things that were going to postpone tennis events to go on this year. But, but yeah, to your point, team, this was really sort of the coming out party for him on hard court. Because we had seen, as you said, he, he got to two previous Grand Slam finals on the clay. Uh, the first time, he said, was kind of, you know, just happy to be there in the final at the French. Second time around, he challenged Rafa a little more. This was really a, a huge performance for him because he, he beat Rafa uh, pretty convincingly in four sets in the quarterfinals. Uh, took out Zverev in Zverev's first Grand Slam semifinal. And had Novak on the ropes. I think that's not a controversial statement to say that in the final. And obviously Djokovic pulled it out because, you know, that's his MO at the Australian Open. He owns that event. But certainly at the Australian Open, a lot of uh, sort of foreshadowing for what was to come the rest of the year with Dominic Team, a very aggressive branded tennis. And, you know, like I said, we 
we saw it in Australia. Uh, you could have thought that maybe he was going to be, you know, distracted mentally by the fact that he didn't get over the edge um, during the final with Novak, but clearly got over that quickly and, and had a great rest of the season. But definitely a very interesting start to the year. Yeah, for sure. I would agree with that. And then we had a couple tournaments afterwards, um, including one that I, I want to talk about, the Delray Beach Open, obviously, because it's one of my favorites. I've been there, covered it several times now. Um, also, because we didn't know it at the time, but the greatest doubles team in, in history, that was their last tournament title in the, in the Bryan brothers. And um, I'll just rattle off some unbelievable numbers there. I, I think Bob had 119 tour titles and 16 slams. Mike had 124 tour titles, 18 slams. Bob has a few more because he played with sock when Bob was injured. They have multiple Olympic medals. Um, a fun fact that many people don't know about Del Rey, and they did go and win that tournament, but if you go back and look at the draw, Nick Kyrgios was not only the top seed in singles, but he was playing Jordan Thompson. He was playing with Jordan Thompson, I'm sorry, in doubles. And Nick, when Nick pulled out of singles, it was already too late to get a replacement team for doubles. So a first-round match in that doubles draw was going to be the Bryan brothers versus Nick Kyrgios and Jordan Thompson. And that would not be easy for the Bryan brothers at all. But, again, uh, just a fun fact that many of you did not know. But, again, did not know it at the time. They did go ahead and win that tournament. And, gosh, what a, what a career they had. Yeah, for sure. You know, Del Rey is a tournament that, you know, I don't have exact stats in front of me, but I'm pretty sure they've owned that event for a very long time. They love to play there. Um, and, well, you know, what I'd say about the Bryan brothers and, you know, as someone who spent a lot of time playing doubles myself, you know, it's, it's kind of just the team that you sometimes just took for granted because they're always around. At least uh, in men's doubles, you see a lot of these top eight, top 15 teams on the ATP tour, they don't last very long. You know, you see these guys, they play together for maybe three, four years tops. And then you kind of start getting the stories at the end of the year. Oh, these guys are breaking up. They're either going to be with someone new or they're rejoining with somebody that they played with, you know, earlier in their career. There's a lot of mix up going on because I think in large part it started because a lot of people wanted to beat the Bryants because for a while nobody could. You had like the Mirny Nestor, the Nestor Knowles team. Uh, then Nestor went with Zimenich. I mean, you could rattle off all these different names that have been cycling around the world of men's doubles. And the Bryants were, you know, the sort of the, the rock there because they were winning slams. They were ranked high. And I think what, what really stuck out to me about the Bryants, I think they adapted their game a lot over the course of their career. Like I said, you know, they're already, you know, somewhere around 40 years of age as of now when they retired. And, you know, probably when they started their career, you know, again, we know, we all know they were successful singles players very much. So at a national level in the United States and, you know, when they came into the game, doubles was still very much a hundred percent servant volley, you know, very aggressive play. Now, as you've seen maybe over the last decade, a lot of these doubles points, there's a lot more lobs, a lot of angles. Teams aren't hitting the ball as hard as they can on every single shot. And I think it's just a testament to the longevity of those guys that they've been able to stay at the top of their game. Like you said, Mike won a couple extra grand slams with Jack Sock during Bob's hip injury. I mean, just an awesome team. And, you know, for me, what will stick with me, I know you, you think back on 
you know, the days where we were um, with GBN tennis, at least when I was still a player and you were coaching, you know, we did the famous Brian brothers drill, which has been very, uh, you know, famously documented on, on TV where you're, you're volleying back and forth service line to service line, moving from one side of the court to the other. So, you know, obviously they did a ton for the game of tennis and they put a big spotlight on doubles that may have not been there previously, especially in a sport now where one, where none of the top singles guys play doubles on a consistent basis. Yeah. Um, I, I would say, I would say two things. One, echo your thoughts on how much they actually did when they're at a tournament, you know, doubles, and especially like a 250, right? They don't play their first match till let's say Wednesday. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are doing so much up to that point, just promoting the event, promoting the sport of tennis, promoting doubles. Um, they did so much for the sport. And the other thing, and again, especially at a tournament um, like Delray, where you get a lot of real close access to the players, I'm sitting on bleachers watching these guys practice. And I'm always watching them. I'm watching the guy without the ball and where he's positioning himself. And they always seem to be in the right place at the right time. No matter what happens, they're always in the right spot at the right time. So if any of you get a chance to watch them practice, just focus on one of them and focus on their movement and where they are during a particular point because it's, it's pretty awesome to watch. So, um, you know, they wanted to go out at their home slam in the U.S. Open, and, and they obviously didn't get the That's a bummer. Yeah. That's a bummer, yeah. and, I, and, and I'm thinking there may be a question when we end with a quick hitter thing if you think this is 100% foolproof, they're not coming back. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that at the, at the very end of the segment. So moving on from Delray, we then had Acapulco. We then have players traveling and on site at Indian Wells before the, the world basically stopped. Now, you didn't know how long it was. Some players were like, okay, well, let's get the first flight down to Miami because that was the next one they thought was going to happen. Obviously, they did not happen. And we had um, <laughs> the strangest pause in, I think, everybody's lifetime. Um, and tennis players were home longer than they have been ever, with the exception of maybe, you know, if you're injured. So really bizarre time, slow time. Things started to come back a little bit late spring with these various exhibitions, summer a little bit. Um, I will give a shout out to World Team Tennis. I thought that had huge play just because people were starving for, for good tennis. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of stars that played that event that may normally not have. Um, shout out Chicago Smash. Loved watching you. Hey, you guys had the title with the exception of the back one-eighth of a line on uh, the, the very last point possibly that can be played um, for him by Coco Vandeweghe. I'm also am a big fan of Coco Vandeweghe, but – Gosh, I wouldn't have minded if that ball was a fraction of a, a bit longer. But, um, again, I thought that event was good, especially with the type, the, the caliber of players they had in that. Um, then we go, shout out, by the way, to USTA. I thought it was a great idea putting Cincinnati in the bubble with New York. Obviously, people from Ohio, people who are in Cincinnati who normally like going to that event, um, missed out again we got to give kind of a pass for whatever happened this year to just try to make things happen thought it was a great idea by the usta um putting cincinnati in in the bubble with with the u.s open victoria azarenka won that tournament great to see her back playing at at a good level novak djokovic won that event on the men's side and i guess the easiest transition is 
we'll stay with Novak, Novak Djokovic when we get to the U.S. Open because um, by my account, I think by your account, I think by most tennis fans' account, uh, especially without Rafa and Roger playing, he had this 2020 U.S. Open almost on a platter for him to take home as a gift. And we all know uh, that that didn't quite pan out. Uh, not quite. Not quite. Lost his temper earlier in that match. Um, hit the ball on the side of the court. No one was hurt. Then at the end of a changeover, we all know what happened. It was not done on purpose, but he was not looking um, where it was. Obviously hit the lines person in the throat. And you hear all these crazy hypotheticals. What if it hit her in the shoulder? What if it hit her in the shin? Um, you know, no one, no one is disputing that the, the rule was applied correctly. He had to be defaulted. Um, my, uh, my hypothetical is what if he hit it exactly the same pace, but what if she caught it? If she actually clean catch, no bobble, she just caught it. Do you think he gets defaulted? You know, it's tough. I'd say probably not just because, you know, a clean catch, you see these clean catches, they're highlight reel type things. Sometimes when there's a serve or a winner and the lines person will just catch the ball. Um, so probably not, but it's one of those things where, like you said, the rule is the rule. And with Novak, this has kind of been, you know, I don't want to say recurring behavior because it's not like he's getting defaulted left and right, but we know that he's a very sort of, uh, unique type of, of star in the game of men's tennis, you know, whereas you have a much more graceful, a much more, um, sort of good or bad, a much more composed, you know, Federer, Nadal, Novak's always been a hothead his whole career, even since he, you know, he started winning grand slams and dominating the game. So he's always had this temper. And I think he put a lot of expectations on himself, just like we're analyzing this as a fantastic opportunity to win the U.S. Open. You think he's not thinking about that? Of course he's thinking about that. And then you've got Pablo Carreño Busta, who, by the way, deserves a ton of credit got to the semifinals of that tournament, uh, played pretty darn well against Novak in the quarterfinals of the French Open a couple weeks later. You know, this this wasn't an easy match. And when things aren't perfectly going his way, we've seen this type of behavior. And look, I don't think it's fair to say that, you know, anyone's glad that this happened. Uh, Maybe he learned a lesson. Maybe he didn't. That's up to the people, the aggregators on social media that want to read his uh, PR posts getting on the airplane on the way home. But look, uh, probably doesn't get defaulted if she clean catches it, but um, just, it's just one of those things that no one's ever going to forget about. Right. I think we can both agree on that. Whether you think it was the right call, whether you think he got a different type of treatment because he's less loved, beloved, so to speak, versus some of the other stars, we can debate that forever. Right. But I think what we can agree on is that this is a blemish whether you think about it in his sort of career, whether this was a lost slam, whether you see it as sort of a personal indictment. Again, that's up to everybody's interpretation, but it's definitely something notable that a lot of people will be talking about, especially given the fact that this was the first big event after the, uh, the pandemic layoff. Yeah, no, well, well said. And there was a danger and we'll stick with the men's side. We are going to hit on the, on the women as far as this tournament too, because some of those women's matches were incredible in the US open, but right now sticking with the men, I think there was a risk, especially without Rafa, without Roger. And then with the default of Novak that 
this could have been what people were saying, an asterisk. Does it really count? And I think um, that could have rightfully been true if you had a final with a guy, let's say, ranked 25 versus a guy ranked 40th. Um, I think there would have been some some correctness, I guess, uh, for lack of better terms of saying, you know what, this doesn't even count. You don't even have the top. It's a wash, ball, yeah. And now you got guys that, I mean, 25 and 30. Thankfully, that did not happen. You arguably had, you, I mean, you got, you got two of the top five, you know, best players in the world in the final in Dominic team, Dominic team and Sasha Zverev. Um, the quality, I mean, you know how tight these guys were knowing that, oh, my God, this is the first time in my career in a slam where I don't have to go through the top three. So the quality wasn't there, understandably so. But um, I was personally happy that Dominic team got through it. He had, he had gone to three Grand Slam finals before, fallen to Rafa twice and on clay, and then Novak, obviously, as you mentioned, in Australia. Um, I'm glad that, that there really isn't any asterisk talk. Uh, I mean, no, he was, he was the next guy in line. He was yeah. the next guy in line. I know a lot of the, you know, the cliche phrases everyone uses that he, quote-unquote, paid his dues. Um, I'm not you know, certainly sure what that means. It's not like, it's not like Zverev didn't deserve to win that tournament, uh, even though he's been on the tour for less. And, you know, it's been well-documented. We've talked about it many a time in years past how uh, Zverev has struggled at the Grand Slam stage. And this is kind of finally the year that he broke through. Um, but certainly, I mean, and it wasn't like it was a cakewalk. Team came down from two sets to love in the final. He beat a very, you know, uh, strong player in Medvedev in the semis. So a uh, very well-deserved and, and the guy proved it. He played phenomenal the, the whole season. Yeah. I'm um, going over to the, to the women's side, because uh, for me, two of the most enjoyable matches, well, basically three of the most enjoyable matches were the women's semis and the women's final and Jen Brady, she wins Lexington. I don't know if you want to say Jen came out of nowhere, but she had quite a run this summer. And she, that match versus Naomi Osaka, so three-setter, those first two sets were some of the highest quality I've seen in a long, long time. I think she, she lost a little bit of gas in that third set, but those first two sets were incredible. Same goes for the second semi with Victoria Azarenka versus Serena Williams. Um, Serena was rolling. It, this was kind of interesting with Azarenka because kind of flip-flopped with her between the semi and the final. But in the semi, Serena was rolling. Um, up a set and up early in the second before Victoria came back, won that match. Then in the final, Azarenka was rolling against Osaka up a set and a break, almost two breaks, I believe, before uh, Naomi started to figure things out and, and, and won that match and took home the title. Um, really impressed with those four women at, at that tournament. They played some great, great tennis. Yeah, and, and look, it was an interesting ju juxtaposition in the final because you had one player in Osaka who's very much sort of part of this new era of, of women's tennis, as I like to call. You know, obviously not super new because she's already, she's already just won her third Grand Slam and she's been number one in the world, but in terms of age. Whereas Azarenka has been a player that sort of kind of came up in that past uh, generation. You know, many famous battles with Serena at at the U S open finals um, has two grand slams herself in Australia. And, and those happened quite a while ago. And so, like you said, to see her playing so well and, and getting to a U S open final 
uh, was very impressive and and just just an all around exciting year for men's uh, for excuse me for women's tennis and I'm sure we'll hit on it a little bit more as we continue throughout the show. But with Sophia Kennan at the Australian Open, uh, you know, beating uh, Gerbina Muguruza, I mean, very impressive results and and very high quality tennis uh, throughout the year there. Yeah, uh, no doubt. So we get through New York, we get through New York and. French Open, here we come. Not a lot of fans, obviously. Um, Rafa, I, I mean, I could, I could do a whole segment on Rafa alone here, but, but we won't. We won't. Um, I, I mean, I'll throw out numbers. I mean, 102, 100 wins and two losses. Fourth time he's won the event without losing a set. I think, by the way, the female winner, Iga Sriatek, also won the, Matt, won the tournament without losing a set. So. Um, she barely even – I think there were barely any sets that were like 6-3 or 6-4. I mean, she right. was beating everyone in 6-2, 6-2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I- extremely impressive um, by those two. Again, going back to Rafa, you, everybody knows the numbers, 13 French Opens. This record will never be broken in, in anybody who's, who's alive today, whether you're 90 years old or whether you're two years old. It's not going to be broken in anyone's lifetime who's alive today. Um, you know, I, I threw out what other records in sports can you try to compare it? I was getting things from every which way you can think of. I had someone throw out darts. There was someone who had a record in darts. Someone um, squashed wheelchair tennis. There was one that was ridiculous. Um, Olympians, you can throw out a Michael Phelps. Um, whatever it is, Rafa's accomplishments at this tournament um, will never be matched. And it, it kind of goes into. Um, the discussion of the, of the big three and it's still ongoing and you know there's no conclusions I've talked about this uh, I do it about once a year um, so I've talked about it the last few years you know the the the, sla- the stats you can slice and dice them each way and I think you can strongly make a case for your favorite of the three and you can make a case against any of the three if that makes sense the, the stats are so crazy, and I'll just throw a, a, a few out. You know, Rafa, 13 slams at one event. Yet, this was crazy to me. He is 0-14 versus Fed and Novak off of clay since of 2015. That, that's crazy. Some say Federer is the GOAT, right? Yet, he has a losing record versus both Rafa and Novak. And yet, many still say Novak because he's the youngest, right, of the three. Um, this was a year that it, the 20, the number 20 is not the magic number because it's not done. I think we'd all agree Rafa has a good chance of winning another French Open. So it's not 20 that's crucial for Novak. It's um, lessening up that gap of three. And he had an opportunity to do that this year by winning that U.S. Open. And he didn't. He started this year three back, and he's still three back after this year. And again, 20 is not the the magic number. So for Novak to, to keep getting that, he needs to lessen that gap. And every year, a little bit more wear and tear on Novak's body. And yet these young guys that we're talking about, they're starting to believe and get better and better. Um, I'll just, I'll just throw it to you. If you're any thoughts on the big three. Yeah. I mean, I think the gap is, is, is big, as, as you said, um, you know, the one thing I, I push back a little against with Rafa is, you know, you bring up all these stats and there's no reason to start discounting any of it, right? Because you can't penalize the guy for being the most successful clay court player ever. You, you just can't. Uh, having said that, you know, 
I don't, I'm not sure we learned a ton of new things in September. Like, I don't think anybody was shocked by the fact that he won that tournament. You had a small contingent that was saying, oh, it's October in Paris, it's cold, it's rainy. Those are conditions in the past that maybe favored Novak. And then we came out for the final and we saw what happened, right? So, you know, I think we can debunk that sort of thing. Um, but again, like you said, um, it, it's hard because you've got three players and their careers are very much not finished, right? You know, we don't know how much longer Federer is going to play for. We don't even know when he's going to come back uh, officially. Um, Rafa, you sort of pencil him in on the clay. And, and Novak, as many have said, is the favorite for probably three out of the four slams every season that he walks on the court for, uh, for various reasons, both physical and mental. So, like you said, the debate isn't over. Um, there's many different metrics that you can put up against many guys. I mean, I'll, I can throw out one more, which is just, um, you know, you talk about when are these guys in their primes, right? I think each of these players, you can make an argument that they've had three sort of very different stages of their careers, maybe even four, where they've been super dominant at times, a number two or a number three at other times, and then, you know, kind of a sharing type of dynamic where we've seen since, you know, 2017 to today's date, arguably. And you can debate, oh, you know, sometimes they beat each other in the semis and finals of slams, and other times, you know, I just throw out some names, they beat guys like Mark Filipusis, Marcos Bagdadis, Robin Soderling, Tomas Berdyk, uh, Kevin Anderson, Joe Wilfried Sanka, David Freer, Mariano Puerta, guys that never won slams. So I think there's a lot of discounting that can go on, but and then there's a lot of like, yep, you need to go through the other two to win this title on whatever surface it was. Yeah. So it's just, it's tough. And, and we'll see how it plays out next year, obviously. And, you know, I know we, we'll, we can get into sort of, um, Federer's future later on in the show, but like you said, very difficult to to gauge what that final number is going to be. Yeah, no, I agree. And and again, it, I would urge the listeners dig into the stats a little bit because I swear you can make a case for your guy, and you could also make a case against your guy, whoever it is. It's 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 fascinating to me. Um, so I, I next want to talk about the year end finals, and for me, you you know my thoughts in the past on the fall after the last slam this to me for the year in finals you saw people not as exhausted and done you saw some people who were still fresh because of the obvious reason there was not a full season of tennis um a couple things that stand out rafa still has never won the atp tour uh year in finals i'm sorry he's never won the the atp year in finals Novak, um, he finished number one. He didn't win the year in finals, but he finished number one for the sixth time in his career, sharing that with, with uh, Pete Sampras. Team play, uh, played Medvedev in the final. I thought team was going to win that, um, but Medvedev did take the title, being down both in the semis against Rafa and uh, team in the final, but, but credit to Medvedev. I guess the next topic is player of the year, and, and I'll make an argument, in my opinion, I think, Strong case for Dominic Team, and I mean, he finals Aussie, he wins the U.S. Open, he finals the ATP year-end finals, and here's a crazy stat: he's 11 and seven versus the big three since 2018. And I'll even go one step further: he's nine and three against the big three since 2019. That stat to me is just insanity. Yeah, it's 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 really hard to argue with that sort of that background. Um, you feel like. Any time in sort of the past 
call it five, six, seven, eight years, you feel like any time a member of the big three walks on the court, they're the favorite against anybody else they play. And let's take Andy Murray out of the equation because obviously he's dealing with some injuries right now. There probably was a time where it's a 50-50 match with him involved as well. But against anybody else on tour, um, outside of the occasional Chilich, Del Potro, or Wawrinka having done it multiple times, it's pretty much, you know, those guys are favored and 90-some percent of the time they're going to be the ones who win. And I feel like the, the sort of transitioning that we're seeing right now is that with Dominic team, it's absolutely a 50-50 match. And it doesn't matter what surface it is. And if not 50-50, clearly by the metrics that you, that you talked about, Dominic team could easily be a favorite in these matches. And honestly, I went into the – he had a round-robin match against Rafa in, in their group, and I said, he's a favorite to win this match. And he had the semifinal against Novak, and I thought it was really 50-50, depending on how it went. And, you know, it was, I think, uh, against Rafa was 7-6, 7-6 seven, six, seven, six in, yeah. the, in the round-robin play. Yeah. And then with Novak was 7-6 in the third when they played in the semifinal. Yep. So totally hear you on that. Um, l- let me just ask, what are your, what are your thoughts, you know, as, as we kind of think who else is, is advancing into this sort of realm of, you know, anybody can win on any given day. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on Medvedev? He's really – he had a huge season in 2019, right? He almost upset Rafa at the U.S. Open. He had that yeah. run where he won Masters. And this year, I think a lot of people could have predicted a bit of a letdown. He lost to Wawrinka in Australia, uh, first-round exit at the French Open, uh, U.S. Open, straight set loss in the semis. And then all of a sudden, he wins Paris, which, you know, we're not going to get it super detailed into. And then he wins a year on finals and kind of does it very casually in his own, like, little style, you know, not as much emotion, just kind of going about his business, a little cat and mouse, as our friend BG likes to call it. What do you think about him moving forward? And can he break into that group as well if you take big three plus a team plus a Medvedev? Yeah, uh, yeah, he's in there for sure, I believe. And you saw Rafa playing. Rafa was puzzled. I mean, that was like a chess match when they were playing each other. And Rafa couldn't figure it out. I mean, Rafa was chipping backhands. He, he chipped more backhands in that match than I think I've seen him in, you know, you could argue the 10 matches combined, right? Um, he was trying to figure it out. And we all know the great match in 2019, the U.S. Open final. But, again, more current, that year-end finals. Um, Rafa, was, <laughs> Rafa was trying to figure it out, and he, and he couldn't quite get it done. So, I, I, look, he, he, he moves a little. He, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't appear to do anything great, but he gets it done. So, mm-hmm. um, he's definitely in that, and he's not scared to play any. That's the biggest thing, that these guys are now not scared to play these big three. Um, so, I. I definitely think he's in the mix. So we, we shall see. And I just think um, you also got to kind of give a pass for this year because it was so crazy and no one's ever kind of experienced it. So I, I almost don't want to lay too Overreact. much yeah. anybody this year. And I don't want to go against anybody this year too, because it was so, so weird. And unfortunately, at least in the beginning parts of 2021, with scheduling and stuff, it looks like it's going to be a little disjointed again. But um, if you don't mind, I, I want to kind of go off course before we, before we kind of get into the latter stages of, uh, of our discussion and talk about maybe some quick hitters and what's ahead in 2021. But um, you know, and, and many of the listeners that follow me, 
know that I recorded a podcast with Brittany Collins. And if you don't know that name, she was the UMass tennis player that uh, was one of two people who I guess um, was given a $252 stipend, I guess you can say. Um, Oh, by the way, this was done five years ago, I may add. Um, for a phone jack. It was unused. Um, she didn't even know she had it. She didn't even know she had the stipend. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm, I'm all about positivity, but this is really important. And if I can go a little bit, um, state my position on this whole ridiculousness, and then we'll get back to ending on a positive note. Um, I think it's an absolute joke. And I urge people to, to listen to my podcast that I had with Brittany at the end of October. Every major media outlet has written about this. The USA Today, ESPN, Sporting News, on and on and on. Dick Vitale, you know, personalities that we all know have stressed how ridiculous this is that you've heard the stories, right, of these bigger programs, cash, cars, fake jobs for family members. I mean, are you frigging kidding me? I mean, what a joke. And you know what? It seems to me like they're messing with the wrong people because Brittany and the athletic department at UMass They have state representatives involved. They have senators. They have lawyers. They have judges. We all know that the the proceedings itself is all all a lot one-sided with the NCAA. She's not allowed to participate in some of her appeals because she wasn't involved in the original meetings, which, again, mind-boggling to me. Um, I'm going to end on this note. I think it's an absolute joke. And for, for people to sit in an office somewhere, and just make a claim that you, you see with big sports what's going on out there. And you have a women's tennis team who won conference title. They vacate three seasons of wins, including a 2010 Atlantic 10 title. And you're talking about $252 for two people each five years ago that you're going to vacate three wins in an Atlantic 10 title. That to me just about is incomprehensible to me. It's friggin' ridiculous and it needs to be corrected. And I, and I, I hope it gets corrected soon. And I'm not saying three years down the road where some of this stuff takes place. It needs to be done quickly. And I'm behind Brittany. And I, I hope um, UMass keeps spreading the word, keeps getting everybody influential they can behind them and reversing this utter nonsense of a decision by the NCAA. Okay, deep breath. I feel a lot better. Good. Okay, now, what to look forward in 2021? As of the recording of this, um, we are now hearing the Australian Open is going to possibly be pushed back two weeks. So that would start at the very, very beginning of February, if that's true. Again, how does that um, affect the scheduling of other tournaments, right? Because there's other tournaments that are scheduled behind Australia in its normal time. Um, so we're going to see how that all plays out. I don't know. We, we can really talk about that. Are you, you going to miss... Sorry, are you going to miss the ATP Cup? Was that an event that you enjoyed last year? In early, I'm not going to miss that, January? but I'm, I'm a little worried. What I am worried about um, is, is Del Rey, because Del Rey, if you look at the dates now, that starts the day after the Australian Open is done. So, um, and the qualifying will be conducted during that last weekend. If there's quarantine rules in effect when players come back, you know, they, Delray doesn't get a Novak, a Rafa, or a Federer, but they get a lot of that next-level type of player. They'll get a Nick Kyrgios. You know Juan Martin Del Pocho's played that before. Um, you'll get some top guys. If there's quarantining rules that go in effect, how does that play into all that? I don't know how that's going to affect the field. Um, 
And that's just not for Del Rey. Again, it's for all the other tournaments that are down the, down the road. Um, that Maybe they'll them. push back. You know, we, we can't predict the future, obviously. Um, but what, hey, what I will say about um, Roger Federer is if it was kind of a shame he didn't get to play the Open this year. Because, you know, at 39 years old, if you, if you remember back to 1991, not, you won't remember it, obviously, but I will. Jimmy Connors was 39 at the time, and that's when he made his run that I know you're aware of and seen highlights of. Um, the next U.S. Open Roger may play is when he's 40 years old. Um, so every year that, it does, that a slam doesn't get played by, by Roger is obviously disappointing. But let's say he does play Australia. What, what, what do you see from him uh, going forward? All right. This is, uh, this is a conversation I haven't been wanting to have with myself especially, but especially with the large uh, contingent of Fed fans out there. But I guess the question we're we're really talking about here is, you know, can he win another one, hypothetically speaking, right? Um, And, you know, to be honest, where I would put Federer is, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who think that this long layoff that he's had, you know, not playing since last year, Australian Open, in large part due to injury, right? He had surgery on his knee. The hope sort of is that he's going to come back in a similar fashion as he came back in 2017, right? That was the same situation, long layoff. And then he comes back and he wins the Australian Open. And not only does he win the Australian Open, he beats Wawrinka, uh, Murray. um, I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, No, he didn't beat Murray because Murray lost to Misha's But uh, point is, he beats Rafa in the final, and he has arguably the best season of his career in that 2017 year, and in what, in my opinion, is like the peak of his play. So the question is, can that happen again? Now, that's a lofty standard. <laughs> yeah. Listen, here's, here's what I've noticed with Federer the last couple of years. I think the sort of most consistent thing that we've seen is that he's been able to redefine his game in the past. Um, you know, he had a lot of back issues in 2013. He got back to number two in the world by playing very, very aggressive brand of tennis. A lot of getting to net wasn't enough against Djokovic in the big matches, but he, he did it. Then in 2017, I think a lot has been attributed to his backhand. That really became a weapon for him at that time. But when you take a step back, one of the biggest things is his movement is just not the same as it was. And, you know, you can look for any comps across a bunch of sports, 40-year-old, you know, players, whether it's men or women, you're just not the same as you were X many years ago, right? Um, And so you're really in a situation where his movement hasn't been great in the last couple years, and he has a knee injury, but what's really hampered him in some of these big matches has been his back, right? That was the issue at the Australian Open when – he barely squeaked by tennis Sangren in the quarters um, needed to save match points against five and John Milliman in the second round. And then it was a formality, the semis with Novak. And so what I think it really boils down to is, okay, you know, forget the 2017 standards. The question that the public wants to know is can he win another major, right? So what do you need for that to happen? Right. It's, it's seven matches and it's best three out of five. And what I would say is you need to be on top of your game in those first, in that first week. Like if, 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 if you're a guy like Federer going four or five sets with somebody in the first week of the tournament, 
it's probably not going to happen if you need to go up against Roth or Novak or team, whoever might be in the later stages, right? I think we, we can both agree on that. And so, look, my opinion is that he had his best chance uh, at Wimbledon in 2019. That, that's, that was it. He yeah. outplayed I mean, 40-15 serving, right? Yeah, I mean, he, he outplayed Novak in that match. The three sets that he lost were all tie breaks, all sort of lottery-type scenarios where anything can happen. He, you know, I think objectively played better than Novak in that match. But when he counted the most, he wasn't mentally tough. I mean, it's, it's a harsh criticism, but he just wasn't. And so if you look at just the pure math, he's not going to be a favorite at any Grand Slam, maybe Wimbledon, right? He's, we know he's not going to be a favorite on the clay courts. And you just you can't convince me that he's that on a hard court three out of five sets that he's a favorite over team who owns him. I think that's very fair to say team owns him. And Novak, who owns him in finals, it, 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 three out of five. So that's my takeaway. Um, I don't know if you have different thoughts and sort of sure everyone can hope for the magical Wimbledon run, but I think um, I really think we might be seeing the last of them this year. Labor Cup, Boston, potentially. Yeah. Who knows? Again, no one's going to speculate. Hopefully, he's healthy from this recent surgery that he had. But um, it's just it's it's very tough, and there's nothing guaranteed. Whereas you know Novak's going to be a favorite. You know Rafa's is going to be a favorite at his Slam. There's just no guarantees for Federer. I think we take this year, and if there's any, you know, uh, any additional year with Fed, and I think we just appreciate the greatness. I don't think uh, I'm I'm with you. I don't think we can expect him to win another Slam. If he does, that would be unbelievable. But I think we just sit back and appreciate the greatness. And going back to that Wimbledon, I mean, let's not. Um, <laughs> I, it was incredible. What was he, 38 at that time? And he beat Rafa in the semis and was up 40-15 serving for it against Novak. I mean, the level that he was playing at 38 years old, will Rafa be at that level at 38? Will Novak be at that level at 38? Who knows, right? There's a good chance they won't be. Um, look, I mean, he's, he, he's in the discussion. And the only reason there's two other people in that discussion, it's just crazy that it's in the same generation. You got, you got three guys out of this world. So I think we just appreciate um, how great he is. Look, maybe he can get the magic for two more weeks. But uh, like we said with all greats, with Michael Jordan, with Magic Johnson, set those VCRs, man, because you never know when the last one will happen. So we just want him to be healthy. Um, with that, I think we'll transition into – we've been going quite a long time, and I know we, we, we do with these, seg- these year-end segments because there's a lot to hit on. I want to just get some quick hitters with you, um, and we'll, we'll end with that. You ready to roll? Absolutely. Let's do it. I mentioned Jen Brady earlier. She won Lexington, had that great run at the Open. Will she make the semis or better of another slam in 2021? Um, no, she will not. But I don't think that's necessarily her fault. That's, I think that just speaks to the depth of the women's game. That's just simple, that's as simple as that. Fair enough. Sebastian Corda. You guys know, all the listeners know, round of 16 at the French, lost to Rafa. Um, his dad won a slam. You're buying stock on this guy. I'm buying stock. I'm not buying stock on asking for autographs of, of people that beat you in the tournament, but I'm absolutely buying <laughs> stock. And, you know, he, he's got a true full court game, uh, unlike some of the other up-and-coming Americans that we're seeing on our television. So, yes, definitely buying stock. I'll agree with you. Not asking for the autographs, with the exception of it's, if it's the big three, all bets are off, you can ask for autographs. Um, 
Andre Rubov, he won five of 14 tournaments he played. And in the slams, I have it written down here, he lost to Sasha Zverev in the round of 16 in Australia, lost to Daniil Medvedev in the quarterfinals at the U.S. Open, and lost to Tsitsipas in the quarterfinals at Roland Garros. I mean, these are all not bad losses by any means. Um, what are your thoughts on him? I mean, he's, he's honestly a sneaky pick for player of the year just because he won more titles than or as many titles as anyone did. I and mean, he's been on absolute terror. Um, I absolutely love his game. I think he's got all the ingredients to, uh, to start beating these top guys. It's just, I think it's all mental for him. He hasn't put it together mentally yet. Um, he's got quite a bit of a temper and just, just can't keep it together always for three out of five, but sky's the limit on him. Yeah, I mean, you said he won all those titles. He won Doha, Adelaide, Hamburg, St. Petersburg, and Vienna. And again, the, the, the three guys he lost to in slams are legit top five, top six in the world. So um, looks like all good things for him in the future. What else do we have? We, I mean, we kind of said about Fed Slam. I mean, all Rafa has to do is win another French. And to anybody else, that would be like, oh, all he has to do is win a slam would be crazy talk. But um, no one's betting against him to win another one. So there is a good chance Rafa will overtake Fed in the slams. Um, I guess, will the big three or big two, depending on how you look at it now, um, dominate the slams in 2021? Uh, no. I think, uh, I think assuming, let's just assume that, you know, all is well in the world and we play all four slams next year. But I think, um, I think we get at least uh, two winners from, outside of the big three. Coco Goff, we all know the huge splash on the tour in 2019. I thought personally in 2020, not having the fans at slams, especially in her hometown slam in New York, um, hurt her. So she, she did not do as well in the slams as she did the previous year, but um, thoughts on her in 2021. Future is very bright. Um, like, like you said, you know, there was a it was a tough year for a lot of players last year and obviously expectations for her were super high just given what she accomplished in 2019 but you know that's the beauty of of being a teenager you know whether it's on the men's or the women's side is there's a lot of time left for you to still develop your game and reach your peak and she like you said she's got a very bright future ahead um she's got the right people around her and I'm sure that success is going to keep on coming before I ask you one more, I will throw out uh, kind of a random thought. Uh, you don't need to t talk about it at all, but if you're, if you're a big fan of watching tennis, which I hope everybody who's listening to this is, and doesn't want to see just two players banging the ball back and forth, take a look and watch Lady Anjabor. If you've never watched her play, she's almost like, a, I guess you call it a throwback. She'll go slices. She'll go flat. She'll go topspin. She'll kind of jerk you all around the court. She's one of those players that when you look in the draw, if you see that you have her, you're like, oh, you put don't me want on the her. other side. Yeah, put me on the other side of the draw. But she's really, really fun to watch. A friend of mine um, told me about her in Australia. She did well at the Australian Open. But just a fun player to watch. And, again, it's just un unbelievable variety from her. So um, go check her out in 2021. And the last question I'll ask you, we, we talked about them earlier. The Bryan brothers, you know, they, they wanted to really, really badly to finish um, in New York in their last slam. That obviously did not happen. Is there any glimmer of hope that, that, that they may 
play in 2021 just because of everything that that happened this was not in their plans to end their career this way I'll tell you where they'll be playing on the champions tour that that's where we'll see them in 2021 yep I think Uh, yeah I do feel bad for them I would have liked I know they would have loved to finish their career uh in New York and I do feel bad for them and again 2020 was one of those just bizarre years and unfortunately it looks like 2021 at least is starting that way um I think the, the, the three terms are safety, health, and adaptability. That's the three terms that are going to be used for, for 2021. David, this, is, this, this was a lot of fun. And like I said, it's, it's one of my favorite segments to do every year. I appreciate you coming on doing it every year. And you know you got an open invitation to uh, come on and talk about whatever you want regarding uh, the sport we love. Thank you. I, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's, it's, it's always a pleasure to discuss, you know, I feel like all these segments, there's never a dull moment. There's just so much going on these years, whether the year is normal or whether the year is disjointed as we had this year. Um, you know, we're just, we're thankful to be able to have this discussion and to have such an exciting sport to root on. And, you know, we'll look uh, upward and onward to 2021. Amen, man. Amen. Thanks again, David. Appreciate it. Absolutely.